I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I wanted to do a chronological sermon series through the life of Jesus, and I really can't think of anyone that I would rather preach on for an extended period of time than Jesus. And I hope that through this series you will learn about Jesus. I hope that you will come to know him better and that you will come to love him more. Each week in the bulletin, I will put for you the text for the next week's sermon. And that will be to your advantage uh, if you will take some time to read that text in the week ahead. And then as you come on Sunday morning, uh, you'll be ready to hear hear that message on the text that you have studied. Uh, We have spent five weeks uh, looking at the birth of Jesus quite extensively. And there are a few passages of Scripture in Luke chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 2 that we're not going to spend as much time with. Uh, One of those passages of Scripture there in Luke chapter 2 has to do with when Jesus was brought to the temple by his mom and dad. He was eight days old. And according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary would offer a sacrifice in dedication to their son Jesus. They would offer that sacrifice to God, a pair of turtle doves, and then he would be circumcised on that eighth day as well. And interestingly, as they are in the temple, there are two different people whom they cross paths with that have some interesting things to say to them about their baby Jesus. One was an older man named Simeon. And moms, you can try to put yourself in Mary's shoes for a moment and just imagine this. If you were her carrying your baby in the temple and an older gentleman, Simeon, you may not even know him. I don't know that Mary knew who this man was. He He was a very dedicated man of the Lord, and he came to her, and he took the baby from her. And he held the baby up, according to the scripture, and this is what he said, Now I can die in peace, since I have seen thy salvation. Now that would be quite an out-of-the-ordinary experience, wouldn't it? For an older gentleman to take your baby and say something of that nature, he was referring to Jesus as the Lord's salvation, the light of revelation to the Gentiles. And and we read in Scripture a couple of different times where Mary is taking all of this in, and she is pondering it in her heart and in her mind, and I am sure this is one of those things that she pondered. And really, she has had a lot to ponder to this point. Angel visits to both Joseph and Mary, telling them about the child that they would have together. And then there were the shepherds who came after the baby was born, and and they bowed down, and they're worshiping your baby, and and they're talking about an angel choir that they have heard sing out on the hillside outside of Bethlehem. A lot of things for them to ponder in their heart and in their mind. And then there's Simeon. And then there was a lady named Anna, an older woman also there in the temple. And she refers to the child as the redemption of Israel. 
This baby was truly a very special baby, but I'm not quite sure that Joseph and Mary had it all figured out in their mind exactly who Jesus was. And, and last week, Dusty preached to you about the wise men coming. And they brought gifts, and they fell down and worshipped the baby as well. And, and, and they came from such a far distance, and they followed this star more for Mary to ponder in her heart. And then there was another angel visit to Joseph saying, take your child and take your wife and and leave right now in the middle of the night and go to Egypt because Herod the king is going to try and kill your child. And thank God Joseph obeyed. He saved the baby's life because it wasn't long before Herod and the the army of his, the Roman army, came into the city of Bethlehem and they killed all the babies there in that city, two years old and younger. But they had, they had fled to Egypt, just as they had been instructed to do. And I'm not sure how long they were there, but then as they were in Egypt, there was another angel visit that came to Joseph and, and said to him it was time for him to take his, his family and move back into the Holy Land. And so he did. Joseph has quite a track record of obeying the Lord's prompting. And as he moved his family back into the Holy Land, there was yet another angel visit who came and said to him that he needed to move his family to Nazareth. And that is what Joseph did. So much for Mary and Joseph to ponder in their heart and in their mind. And Nazareth was the hometown of Jesus. That's where he grew up as a young child. And there's just one story from this point to the point of when he is 30 years old. Just one story in the childhood of Jesus. It's found in Luke chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. But the next time after this time that we see Jesus, he's 30 years old and he's being baptized by John the Baptist. And so from From just such an early age to the age of 30, we have very little material made known to us about the life of Jesus. And yet, that is apparently the way God wanted it to be. I want to read to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and take a look at this incident that happened in the 12th year of Jesus' life. We'll begin with verse 39 and read... Verse 40 as well. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, now understand, in the Jewish culture, the age of 12 was a very significant birthday. In their minds, and their culture, the young boy was passing from childhood into adulthood. Now that sounds foreign to us today. And yet that is how it was in Jesus' day. Verse 40 is a verse that you don't just skim over. Because it tells us that Jesus lived a very normal life growing up. Strong physically. He increased in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. In other words, God's favor was upon him. He was well pleased 
with how Jesus was living his life. And it seems that Jesus did not have an identity problem. We'll see that in the text. Even at the early age of 12, he knew who he was. Let me read to you verses 41 through 44. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Now someone might wonder in their mind, how in the world could Mary and Joseph have made such a mistake? They went off and they left their son in the big city of Jerusalem. And as I was studying for this sermon, some of the sources that I was looking at was saying that there could have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 210,000 people in the city during this time of Passover. This was a drastic mistake on their part. And yet how many of us have failed to communicate with our spouse and we have left one family member behind somewhere and and had to go back and get them. I knew there had to be such an incident in our family history. I was talking with Cindy and asking her if, if she could remember such an incident. And, of course, she could remember it quite well. Jonathan, our son, was, was, was a, just a toddler at the time. And, and we usually come in two different cars uh, on a Sunday morning. And, and we left uh, after the, the second service. I thought she had Jonathan and she thought I had Jonathan. And we both got home and neither of us had him. And we had to, to race back to the church to get him. You know, we've probably all of us have been in that kind of a situation before. Joseph and Mary, they're traveling from Jerusalem back towards their home of Nazareth. They're traveling in a caravan, the scripture says. They have a lot of acquaintances in this group. There, there are relatives there. And it would have been easy for them to think that, that he was with the other one. Maybe in this situation, the men would have been traveling with the men, the women with the women. It would have been easy for Joseph to think that Jesus was with his mother. And it would have been easy for Mary to think that he was with his father. Or maybe, maybe the situation was like this, that they had seen Jesus early in the morning as they were getting around, ready to go. And, and, and then they lost track of him, but they thought that he was with some of his cousins. He was with some of his friends. And, and they would eat back up together as a family that evening when it was supper time. But when supper time came, there was no Jesus. And and you can put yourself in their shoes as a mom and dad. Because they would, I'm quite sure, the feelings of of anxiousness, the frantic feelings that they began to have as they went from one person in the caravan to the next. and, And they went from one campfire to the next. And they are looking for their son Jesus. And they realize he is nowhere. Nobody has seen him all day long. Their search was intense. Their stomach were in knots. They were fearful. 
couple of weeks ago, Cindy's nephew, Matt, and his wife, Jen, were at our house with their little two-year-old Brecken, and they were telling us of an experience that they had had recently at a ball game. They, they were focused on the ball game. And if you, you're a sports fan, you know how you, you're at a ball game, you can get so caught up in the game and lose track of your little one around you, and you know how fast a two-year-old toddler can get lost from you. And this was the case for them. They're watching the game, and then, then they come back to reality. They look around. Brecken is not there. They're wondering where she's at. They, they don't see her anywhere around them. And, and so Matt goes this direction. Jen's going that direction. And feelings of, of anxiousness are there for them. They found Brecken all the way down at the other end of the bleachers. She had found a church member that she was friends with, and and she was sitting with them and having a conversation and just having a good old time. And so for Matt and Jen, their feelings were relieved when they found her. And we've all been there before as parents. We've lost our child at at Walmart or in the grocery store or a department store, maybe in the mall, maybe at a ball game, and and we have felt those those anxious feelings, but, but for most of us, they're relieved quite quickly because we find our child. But for Mary and Joseph, there was no relief for three days, the Scripture says. Let me read on to you from Verses 45 and 46, when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, I'm quite sure these three days include those two days of travel. They've taken one full day traveling away from Jerusalem towards Nazareth. Then they discover Jesus is not with them. It takes them a full day to travel back to Jerusalem. And on the third day, they find Jesus. He was, in verse 46, he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is 12 years old at this time and already he is way beyond his years verse 47 says and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers i will tell you it will not be the last time that people will be amazed at him at this point, they are amazed at his understanding of the scriptures and his, his insight and, and the questions that he is asking of them. Later, they will be amazed at his miracles. They will be amazed that he can walk on water. They will be amazed that he can calm the storm and that he has authority over the demons and that he has even authority over the dead. They will be amazed at his power and his authority. Let me read to you verse 48. And when they saw him, this is Joseph and Mary, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Mark Moore in his commentary says the word anxiously here comes from a word that is often associated with acute pain. In other words, Joseph and Mary, they were hurting while they looked for Jesus. She is saying to him, son, we have painfully searched for you. Why have you treated us this way? 
And Jesus' response to them is quite interesting. Verse 49, he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? The New King James Version says it this way. How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Keep in mind, these are the first recorded words of Jesus in Scripture. I like the way the message treats this verse too. It reads like this. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be here dealing with the things of my Father? I'm, I'm quite sure when Jesus said this to Joseph and Mary, the full meaning of those words just went right over their head. Verse 50 says they did not understand the statement that he had made to them. As parents, all they could think about was, we have found our son. And oh, such relief they had in their heart. They're, they're happy. And, I, and I'm, I'm imagining that there is, there is a release of emotion. There's tears. There's hugging. There's rejoicing that goes on. And, and maybe even Jesus, at the, at the age of 12, didn't understand fully their response back to him. Because he, he didn't act like he had been worried at all. He, he was in the temple just dialoguing with the teachers. He's not worrying about his absence of his folks. So it's, it, I'm thinking maybe he doesn't understand their response and to him. Now, the question that, that might be asked is, was this a sin on Jesus' part? Absolutely not. Because Jesus was without sin. All through his life, he was without sin. He wasn't intentionally being disrespectful of his parents or rebellious towards them. He was just totally about his father's business. And when Joseph and Mary come to him, verse 51 indicates that when they said, come with us, Jesus went with them. He continued to live in subjection to them. He didn't throw a fit as he's there in the temple. And he didn't say, I'm not going with you. I'm right here where I need to be. No, when they said, son, come with us, Jesus bent his will to their will. He went with them. He lived a life of subjection to them. For a moment, though, I want to go back to this statement that Jesus has made to his mom and dad. Already at the age of 12, Jesus was all about his heavenly father's business. He said, I must be all about my father's business. This is a 12-year-old boy who is becoming a man, and already he is dead to the world, he is dead to himself, and front and center is his father's business. He is consumed with the father's will. He is passionate about the father's will. And for you and I, I wonder, a question that we should ask ourselves is simply, are we about our father's business? Is that what is important to you and to me? Are we passionate about his business? Is this what we are consumed with? 
It's so easy for us to get distracted. It's easy to get caught up in other things and to neglect the things that are most important. A good prayer for us in this new year to come would be this. Lord, help me be more about your business. Let me read verse 52 to you. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I want to I land here on this text for the remaining part of this sermon. I think it's an appropriate topic as we enter into a new year. In, je- in this verse, there are four areas that Jesus grew in, and it would be good for you and I to grow in these same areas. And the first area is this, Jesus grew in wisdom. Anybody here need more wisdom? (laughs) Yeah, all of us do, don't we? I I do. I need wisdom in how to deal with people. I need wisdom in how to deal with circumstances. I need wisdom in making decisions. All of us need wisdom. I don't think there's a person here that would raise their hand and say, I don't need any more wisdom. I've got all of it that I need. No, you'd be deceiving yourself. If you said something like that. How does a person get wisdom? Let me tell you. You go to the one who is able to give it to you and you ask them for it. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Let's break that verse down for just a second. If any of you lacks wisdom, that's a pretty encompassing statement, isn't it? It it includes everyone... Now, we do need to understand he's talking to the church here. Verse 2 in James chapter 1, you look back there, you see the context. He's addressing the brethren of the church. And so this promise is for Christians everywhere. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you are short on wisdom, I don't care who you are, if you are one brethren, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you lack wisdom, then what you need to do is ask God for it. And why do we ask God? Because he's the source of wisdom. Daniel 2 verse 20 says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. Romans 11, 33 and 34 says this, oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His decisions and His ways. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give Him advice? The answer is no one. No one can advise God because God's the source of all wisdom. Man's foolishness is or man's wisdom is foolishness before God. He's the source of wisdom, and he says, if you need it, ask me for it, and I will give it to you generously. Now, there is another way that we can get wisdom, and that is through this book right here, God's book. He has his wisdom 
written down for us in this book. You want wisdom? Get into this book. Four-year-old boy picked his family Bible up off of the coffee table and he asked his mom, Mom, whose book is this? Mom says, well, well, son, that's God's book. And he says, well, shouldn't we give it back to God then? Because we sure don't use it around here. (laughs) Sad commentary on some families. That when God's book stays closed and is unused, it collects dust, it's a centerpiece on a coffee table. It shouldn't be that way for you and I. This is a book to be used. This is a book that we gather the wisdom of God from. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give to you wisdom that leads to salvation. This book is the source of wisdom. Therefore, we need to get into this book. We need to read this book. We need to digest this book. We need to absorb it into our mind and into our heart. We need to study the book and memorize the book. We need to obey the book. The more we are into this book, the more we will understand God. We will understand how he thinks. We will understand the things that he loves. Those are the things that we need to love. The things that God hates, those are the things that we need to hate. so Jesus, in his early years, grew in wisdom. And so should we. Let me give to you a second point. Jesus grew in stature. In other words, he grew tall and strong, just like young boys do. If you would let me stretch this scripture just a little bit for the point of application, could I encourage you in this new year to come to give good attention to your physical health? Most of the time from this pulpit, you will hear me speak about our spiritual health. And certainly that is a priority. That is the utmost priority. But in this case, let me speak to you for just a moment about our physical health. We need to give attention to our physical health. Why? Because our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and we want to make our body the best home for the Holy Spirit that we can give to the Spirit. Would you eat right in this new year to come and know when to stop eating? Would you exercise right and take care of your physical body the best that you can? And to be careful not to abuse your body With such things as tobacco and alcohol. You know, and we could go on and on about how we oftentimes abuse our body with things that, you know, may not be all that bad. We can abuse our body, though, as we pour excess into it of of chocolate or pop or chips or or the, the list is long. Take care of your physical Body. The bottom line is we need to be more disciplined. If we're disciplined in the physical, 
then it's more likely that we'll be disciplined in the spiritual. The sad thing, though, is we have a lot of undisciplined Christians. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I buffet my body. It doesn't say I buffet my body. I buffet my body. The New International Version says it this way, I, I beat my body. The New Living Translation says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. In other words, we are to be in control of our body, not our body being in control of us. Paul said there is value in bodily discipline. Do you remember how much value? A little, he says. There's just a little value in bodily discipline. Let me read it to you from 1 Timothy 4.8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So while we do give emphasis to our physical well-being Knowing that there is a little value to that, we need to give greater emphasis to our spiritual well-being. Isn't that true? Our, our, Our physical is so temporary. And I don't care how hard we try to be physically fit and hold off the aging of the body, we just can't do it, can we? I'm thinking of of my own situation. Uh, I play basketball a couple of times a week as Buck Run has built a really nice racquetball court. I play racquetball once a week. I run a couple of times a week. At my age, I'm probably in the best shape physically that I have been for, for a number of years, and yet I can't hold off getting older. It forces its way upon me. And it does the same for you. We can try to hold it off. We can't do it. And so what benefit would I have if I give all of my attention to the physical but not to the spiritual? We need to give attention to the spiritual because that's what's going to last forever. I need to exercise spiritually. I need to work out spiritually. That's where the greatest value is. You you know how you feel good after you've had a good physical workout? If you've walked on the treadmill or you've run a couple of miles and you come back, your, your body feels good from that. The same is true spiritually. If we work out spiritually, if we spend time in the prayer closet, if we take time to be in the Word of God, if we look for an opportunity for service, if we look to witness to our neighbor, we feel good after that because it is like a spiritual workout. And we ought to be striving for that. Let me give to you a third point. As we learn from Jesus, he was in favor with God. He grew in favor with God. I think that's an understatement. He was perfect. He was without sin. He obeyed his mom and dad always. Not once did he get out of line with them. 
Not once did he rebel against them. Not once was he selfish with his brothers and sisters. And yes, he did have brothers and sisters. You, You know that. They're listed for us in Scripture. Now, we could maybe say it better. They're half-brothers and half-sisters because they shared the same mother but not the same father. But Jesus grew up in a large household. He had at least four brothers and sisters, plural, so he had at least two sisters. It's a large household, and Jesus never once sinned against his siblings. Never argued with them. He never fought with them. Never got involved in gossip. Never got involved in judging wrongly another person. What he said in John 8, 29 was just as true for his childhood as it was for his adulthood. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. How would you like to have a perfect elder brother? I am quite sure that it, it, it put a lot of pressure on those other siblings. And I'm thinking they grew tired of hearing their parents say, Why can't you be like Jesus? You've heard the phrase, I, I'd like to be a fly on the wall so that I could see and hear what was going on inside of that room, I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall and be inside of the home of Jesus to see the dynamics of what was going on there with Joseph and Mary and with his brothers and sisters and with Jesus. But we can only speculate what it was like. But we know this for sure. He was perfect. He was in favor with God. And may that be our ambition and prayer in 2013, that we would seek to be in favor with God, that we would seek to be pleasing to the Father in our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, our relationships, our actions. Jesus was in such favor with the Father That at one point in his life, he could say to those in his presence, which one of you can accuse me of sin? And they were silent. There was nothing that they could point to of when he was in the wrong. He was completely in favor with God. And last of all, he was in favor with man. He was growing in favor with with man. Have you noticed this is our church purpose statement for the church and for us as individuals. We exist to love God and we exist to love people and Jesus was living that out. He loved God, he was in favor with God and he loved people and he was in favor with people. Does that mean that he was a people pleaser? Certainly not. <laughs> he was Never a people pleaser in that he would do what they wanted him to do. No, he was a God pleaser. And because he was a God pleaser, first, 
he grew in favor with man. And what that simply means is people noticed him. And people would turn to the other and talk about him and say, you know, that Jesus, that son of Joseph and Mary, I don't know that I've ever seen a kid as good as he is. He's just pleasant to have around. Have you noticed his disposition? Have you noticed that he just, he's so polite? He's always doing something for somebody else. He was in favor with man. Even from a young age as he grew. And so may we try to be in favor with man too. Not to be a people pleaser by any means. But to be a person of disposition that would be honorable to God and and favorable to man. And that people would enjoy being around us. And that we would be a a good aroma to people, as it says in Hebrews. that, That we have an aroma about us that is just... Favorable to people. And if we would live that kind of life, then they'll listen to what we have to say to them. Four things for us to grow in and strive for in 2013. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to grow in taking care of our physical well-being. We need to grow in our relationship with God. And we need to grow in our relationship with our fellow man. Let's pray together. Father, help us in these areas. Thank you for Jesus' example to us. Help us in 2013 to be about our Father's business. We pray this in Jesus' name.